Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Church. The Lord is king. Let the earth rejoice. Let the farthest coastlands be glad. Light shines on the godly and joy on those who har- whose hearts are right. May all who are godly rejoice in the Lord and praise his holy name. I'm Beth, and I'm a volunteer here and also a member of this team, and we would love to have you in our team. Is that a good ploy for more people? <laughs> well, when you put it that way, it sounds really desperate. <laughs> it's not desperate. It's just great to be up here and so much fun. And uh, Pastor Tim, we've talked about authentic worship, and we've talked about leadership lessons and giving with a good heart all things that have kind of really made us think a lot. What do you have for us today? Well, we're going to be talking about service today, Beth. And I think what you you wanted to say (laughs) is the joy of service. Ah, None of that was planned or staged. Um, No, we're, we're going to conclude our series this morning on taking the next step. And we're going to be talking about joyful service. And it, it's not necessarily the, the, the ploy or the ask to serve. It's the reality that when you live out our, your, your calling that Christ has put in your life um, to serve, that you're living out your purpose in life. And that serving doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be challenging. It doesn't have to hurt. That when you live into the purpose that God has put into your life, that serving actually is joyful. Um, but the people in Malachi, in, in the Old Testament book of Malachi, as we'll find today, didn't necessarily understand what it meant to fully serve God. And instead of living into what they were created to do and be, they instead, some of the people instead chose to complain to each other about what they were called to do. And then there was another group that didn't complain. They chose to just see the bigger picture of what God was doing, and they gave God his glory, and they honored God in their words and their deeds, and they faithfully served. And, and God kind of just called them out on it, and, and he listened to everything that was being said. Because whether we like it or not, God listens to us, whether we're talking to God or not. And while the folks in Malachi were were complaining to each other, God was listening. Some might even say God was eavesdropping on their conversations. And um, wasn't necessarily pleased on what he heard. And he called them out. And so today we're going to talk about service. We're going to talk about the joy of serving and not trying to make you feel like you have to serve, but just to help you understand that what it, the joy that we find in fulfilling our calling and that God has created us to serve, to be his people. And we're going to close this series with that as we move into this Christmas season. So I invite you to, to take this moment to just pause as we're going to pray together, and then we're going to sing a little bit more together. Let's, let's be in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be in this place, in this space. We ask that you would work among us, that you would be present that you would use the words, the music, the silence, and all that we are together to to help us come to understand you more. Speak to us this day, O God. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus the Christ, that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Where two or more are gathered, and we are few, 
and far between this morning. So let's do this. Because I feel as though, if we're going to do this right, we need to be more closely together. And I know this message is everyone's safety and space. Let's, let's do this. Come over here. And I'll, and I'll come down here. You don't all have to sit like in the front row together. You can have a, there's enough room to have a seat between you. Um, it's your safety net, okay? And um, and we'll we'll mix it up this morning. And and uh, if 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 we had a few less, we could do the round table. So if you want to stay home next week, and we can just break it down into a small group, then um, well we can do that. But why don't we? Um, you know, no, no, Kath, you don't have to leave. You don't have to leave. Um, but I'm gonna bring this down, and I'm gonna sit too, because. It feels like today is a good day to do this a little bit different. Hey, Fred, while you're drinking coffee, why don't you bring some Bibles up? And we'll do this more like a, more like a Bible study, small group today, because we're a smaller group. Um, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and open up your phone, and we'll go to uh, Malachi Chapter 3, it's in the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew, go back a few pages because it's the last book of Malachi, or last book of the Old Testament. Um, the, Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Um, this is all from the hip. I did the full sermon in the first service, and if you wanted that, boy, you should have got up early today. Ha, ha, ha. But um, we're going to look at Malachi chapter 3 today. And I just feel like if, if with, with us being here today like this, let's just do it this way. Maybe it'll be a shorter message. <laughs> Diana looks at the back, she goes, nope, doubtful, doubtful, not going to happen. So there's two groups of people in this um, part of the chapter as we get to the end of Malachi. And one of them is group one, we're going to call them Group one, group one is looking around and complaining, which we know church people never do that. Um, and group two is the group that is looking up and comprehending. And there's a big difference between that, um, going around with each other and complaining and looking up and comprehending, right? So looking up and comprehending would be like looking up to God and, and kind of seeing the big picture. Looking out to each other and complaining is, is never happens in the church, he says sarcastically. So um, we're going we're gonna to start in Malachi um, chapter 3, verses um, 13 through 15. And I have the NIV um, with New International Version, which is the same version as the Pew Bibles um, that Fred would have just handed out. If you have a different translation, then it won't read the same. Um, but so starting in verse 13, which says, You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile, resistance is futile, to serve the Lord or to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they will get away with it. Okay, I'm going to read a second translation, which is on the screen, if you want to look at it up there, um, which is from the Eugene Peterson's version, The Message, which says, 
God says, you have spoken hard, rude words to me. You ask, when did we ever do that? When you said it doesn't pay to serve God. What do, you, what do we ever get out of it? When did what we said and went, when did, when did, when we did what he said and went around with long faces, serious about God of the angel armies, what difference did it make? Those who take life into their own hands are the lucky ones. They break all the rules and get away with it. They push God to the limits and get by with it. So there are, these people were basically complaining about three different things. Um, Did you pick up any of them in that passage? Three things that they're complaining about. Jakester, pastor's kid, let's see. This is the this is the test, right? What did what were they complaining about? They say bad things about yeah, they do say bad things about the Lord. But they're complaining against God in three specific ways. Well, I'll give you the first one because it's on the screen. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm not following the script now. They've they complained that they've not done anything wrong. In verse 13 it says. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? What have we said against you? What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? God is saying that his people are, are not only being stubborn with him, but that, you know, that, that they're denying it. And God's saying, what do you mean, what have you said against me? I, I think it's interesting. God not only is not saying that they're saying bad things to him, He's saying that they're saying bad things against him. Do you notice that? It's not that the people are saying bad things to God, like, smite me, almighty smiter, as, as Jim Carrey would say in Bruce Almighty. You know, they're not, people aren't yelling at God. They are yelling about God. They're saying bad things against him. And so God's eavesdropping. And they're talking about and complaining against God. And so they're confronted with this, and they kind of like deny it. So, rhetorical question. I'm trying to paraphrase this sermon into a study, so we'll we'll see how it goes. We may never do this again. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that it's easy to find people who will agree with you when you're complaining? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say case in point and give you an example, but I refuse to at this point because I don't want to put myself under that bus and have to remove that foot from my mouth. Another rhetorical question. Are you ever attracted to people who have sympathetic thoughts and feelings to you when you're complaining about something specific? At work, at home, hey, Thanksgiving is coming this week. Do you have a family member who tends to be that person? If not, maybe it's you. <laughs> when, when we grumble against God, we want others to grumble with us. I think about the church also. When we grumble about the organization of the church, do we also not want people to grumble with us? I think so. I think so. In verse 14, God continues. He says, you have said... Um, and I'm going to, re- 
I, I don't like the language here. I'm going to go back to the message here. You have said, what, what's the use of serving God? What have we gained by obeying his commands or by trying to show the Lord of Heaven's armies that we are sorry for our sins? I, I think they didn't know God was listening. Sometimes we forget God listens to everything we say and do and is that, that omnipotent, all-seeing, all-hearing all presence in our, our lives. But they're basically saying that worshiping, tithing, and serving God have no purpose. That it's all a vain and empty pursuit. And I'm not going to imply that any of you think that or feel that, but I will tell you that sometimes I have felt that and I'm the pastor. And so if I feel that, I assume that maybe you have felt that at times, that sometimes it feels like spinning your wheels. I'm not going to say that you feel like that, but if I feel like that, maybe you do too sometimes. So, little history lesson. Um, in verse 14, it says, what do we gain, right? Another word, that word gain in the Hebrew, um, another word that's used in other translations is profit. What do we profit? That, that same word is translated many times, um, and the word profit is used kind of a negative connotation in this. Um, profit is, comes from, in this context, comes from uh, a, a weaver. Uh, does anybody know what a weaver is? Weaves fabric, a weaver on a loom. My mom had a loom. And you had to put the thread through, you get it never turned out right. But a weaver um, would, would cut the cloth free from the loom. And profit um, is used as a, a negative connotation here because the word was used to, to cut, to take a cut off the loom to get a percentage to someone to have their cut. That's where that that phrase comes from, is from a weaver who would get their percentage or their cut from the loom. Um, and so, really, this what do we gain? When the, when the people are saying, you have said it is futile, futile to serve God, what do we gain by carrying out his requirements and by doing, doing, going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? What does it gain to serve, to tithe, to give, to worship, to, to do all this stuff? It's gain, it's useless, empty, and and a vain pursuit. They're they're perpetually saying that this is a this is a um, what's in it for me? What do I get out of this? It's a consumer mindset. What is what is it that I get? So, this isn't in the script. Not talking about you, but someone you know. What does someone you know expect to get out of church or worshiping God in general or faith? What's that? To feel good. Okay. Someone might want expect to feel good out of church. What else? Would someone you know expect to get out of being faithful to God or church or religion? Instant gratification. A blessing. Okay. What else? A miracle. Yes. Wisdom. 
I'm sorry, all of you introverts. This has got to be very hard on you. As, getting the help, getting the help you need to help other people. Direction. That roadmap for your life. Everything's going to be fine. Everything will be perfect. Everything's going to work out. Magically, the student loans disappear. <laughs> the mortgage gets paid. I win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes and the lotto on the same day. I'll even give my 10%. Yeah, to make amends by coming to church. Yeah. Oh, you know what it makes me think of? To know that I've been forgiven. Yeah, not just to be forgiven, but to actually know that I've been forgiven. Because those are two entirely different things, aren't they? So people come to church or want faith and religion for a variety of different reasons. And these people are saying, what do I get out of this? And they're grumbling to each other. What do I get out of this? And they said this in Isaiah 58.3. We have fasted before you, they said. Why aren't you impressed? We have been hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. And that was their second complaint. They saw no benefit in serving God. It's that consumer mindset. And so this, this complaint still rears its ugly head in church today. Um, and some of us, some people have stopped serving God altogether because of it. Some have stopped being active in church. Some, because some people don't see any benefit in it. What's the point? I don't know how many times I've heard people say that. What's the point of going to church? What's the point of having faith? What's the point in doing any of this anymore? Or maybe there's also people who have been doing it all along and they now feel that it's pointless to keep it up. But I encourage you to keep it up and not to lose heart. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. And I think we make service too complicated. I think that um, we make it too hard. I don't think it's meant to be that complicated. Um, I think that we were designed... I believe, truly believe that each of us have been, has been uniquely designed to fulfill God's purpose in the world in whatever form that it takes. We are all uniquely created, uniquely created for a purpose and to live it out. And that when we do, when we find that, as, as Beth was saying, you know, it's not that, it's not that we're, um, you know, we're needed and we have to do that. We're desperate for people to do these things. It's that when you find that niche, that this is what I was created to do, you take joy in it, and that work doesn't become a job, it becomes a passion. It's that your service doesn't become a, oh, I gotta go and do this. It's that you get up and you want to do it. And that you're living out your purpose in life, and it's not, you don't go to do these things dragging your feet and you don't wanna do them, that you're excited about it. And yeah, it's hard, it's exhausting sometimes, but that's the way we were created to be able to do these things. And sometimes they shift and change in our life, but it's not meant to be hard. It is exhausting sometimes because church is messy and faith is messy and life is messy. But it can be extremely satisfying because we're saved to serve, we're healed to help, and we're blessed to be a blessing. 
So I want to give you this acrostic that is from the sermon. Um, I believe it comes from uh, Rick Warren's church, uh, which is Saddleback out in California. It's called Shape. And this is kind of a, a breakdown of, of the significance of serving. If you could go to the Shape slide. There we go. So they, Rick Warren says that there's five factors for serving in a person's life. And I, I want to go through these in a little more depth than I did in the first service because these are really good. And you can just go ahead and put them all up there. We don't need to go through them like we did this morning. Um, so that you can write them down. Uh, shape, this acrostic, these five things kind of create a, a, well, the five factors of service. The first is spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are the God-empowered abilities that we have that God gives us um, for a specific thing. And there are all kinds of spiritual gifts inventory. If you want to take one, we have one that we use as a church um, we can give it to you and show you how to do it so you can assess your own spiritual gifts. But these are things that God gives us uh, to, to learn and grow. And there's also the heart. That's what motivates us um, and what we care about most, what we're passionate about. Our abilities are our talents, those that we're naturally gifted with, or we're born with. Some people are natural nurturers. Right? It's not a spiritual gift. It's just who we are. It's how, it's, you know, I, I made fun of... Um, Sorry, I didn't make fun of. I commented on um, the gentleman who handed out the Bibles earlier about his gift of gab that he has always had as being one of his abilities, his natural abilities. He can talk to anyone forever. <laughs> um, personality affects how and where we use our spiritual gifts. Some people are introverts. Some people are extroverts. Some people... Um, if you study the Enneagram, um, really cool thing. Check it out if you haven't. Not scientifically backed up, but I find a lot of truth in it. Um, experience, though, is what we've prepared ourselves for and we've learned and learned over the way. So that's like someone may have gone to school to be a teacher and has learned to be a teacher, whereas someone may have the gift of teaching, the spiritual gift of teaching, which is the gift of being able to relate Scripture to personal life. Two completely different things. Um, but anyway, so this is what prepares us to do ministry, to, to live out and to serve. And this is what people in um, Malachi were frustrated about because of the third grievance that they had, and that was that God wasn't fair. Have you ever had that conversation that God isn't fair? So this is going to be fun. I wanted to do this at the first service, but I knew it would never go over. What did your parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever in your life, say to you about fairness? Fair. Life isn't fair. Any other ones? You get what you get, and you don't throw a fit. What else? What was the cliche that you were taught as a child, as a teen, and in life about fairness? I'm just curious, because I got three kids. <laughs> Mine was equal does not mean fair, and fair does not mean equal. Any others? I just need more fodder for my kids. <laughs> this is strictly, strictly personal here. Yeah, write these down for Jake. They, they, they thought God wasn't fair. Do you believe God is fair? No? Yes? I don't think we know that he's good until we 
We don't see it all the way, all the time. Here's, here's their complaint. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away from it. Or as Eugene Peterson would have said, um, the, the proud prosper, the evildoers evade trouble, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the little man can never get ahead. Is God fair? It's a subjective question, isn't it? You don't have to raise your hand. There's Yeah, you know, you're leading right into the next point. <laughs> leading right into the next point. Um, I think it's great that um, back, you know, 1,000, 2,400 years ago, um, or 400, Malachi was written 400 years before the birth of Christ, something like that, 300 years before the birth of Christ. I have to look it up. I don't remember right now. Um, but that um, people were upset because bad good bad or good things were happening to bad people and it made people mad and they blamed god and they complained about it to each other and we still do the same thing today 2400 years later 2300 years later um but there was still a remnant of people in, uh, in the israelites and in, in malachi that were um faithful that saw the bigger picture jim that they were, were um they were saying you know what this we're going to look up and we're going to just comprehend that God's got a bigger picture going on. And that's that second group that, that um, Malachi is going to look at now. And so we're going to continue on here into the rest of the book of Malachi. So the second group, group two, looked up and they comprehended. And um, so we'll look at the faithful remnant. That's starting in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. I know this is going to sound straight up like a church meeting, but I'm going, to, I'm going to read it out of the NIV here. Then those who feared the Lord talked to each other, and the Lord listened and, and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his, pres in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So there are two key elements about this group of committed believers, and that's their character, which is that they exalted God, and their conduct. They edified each other. So let's, let's look at their character real quick. Um, what do you notice about their character? What is it that they, what is it that they did? What, what verbs do you read in, in, in 16 there through 18? What did they do? Just in 16, they feared the Lord. 
Does anybody remember what the what actual feared the Lord means in text of the Old Testament? That it's not feared like Amba, like Night of the Living Dead. What does feared the Lord mean in the Old Testament? Anybody? Bueller. 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 Yeah. And you said? Revere and honor. In awe. Respect. Yeah. So those are all correct. Thumbs up. You were listening a few months ago when I said that. I'll take that as a win. To, to fear the Lord is not to be scared of God. To fear the Lord is actually the root of the word awesome in English. The word awe, to be in awe of, like, oh, like when you think of angels and angelic and like having to like cower in fear, like, I am not worthy. You are, in, you are in a higher place than me and you are to be respected and honored and, and be in reverence of. Like that is the fear of the Lord. Not I'm deathly afraid of you and I want to do something because I don't want you to kill me. Like not that. That's not fear of the Lord in this context. It's that you are to be awed because you are awesome. I know, like, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ruined the word for our culture, um, but have created an amazing pop culture reference, but I'm, no, I'm, uh, I lost it now, but, but the, the, the word to fear the Lord means to, to hold God in awe, and we don't do that anymore as a culture. We don't set God apart as being holy Holy, holy, like W-H-O-L-L-Y-H-O-L-Y. Holy, holy, and set apart and to be respected and honored as a culture anymore. But that's what they did. They, they, uh, they honored God. And, and the second thing that they, that they really did is, they, um, is that they edified each other. That was the big thing. They came together and they worked together. I'm just looking to see what in here I want to talk about. This is good because this is right what we're doing. So, and while it sounds like a church meeting, those who understood who God was and who they were, the second group of people who feared God and that they, they held him in honor and the highest respect, gathered together with each other and, and God put their, their name into this book. Now, let me ask you a question. Does God need a book of names to remember who honors him? Yes or no? No, he doesn't. So, um, why does God have a book of names? For whose sake would God have a book of names? For us. It would be for our sake. Because the only thing that God ever forgets is our sin, right? That, that's the only thing that God forgets. That's, that's what Scripture tells us. Um, in Revelation 12, you know, it says that John, John sees this, this book of life. And, and you know, in, Pro, in Psalms, it says that um, God has our names written on, his hand, on the palm of his hand. Um, but, you know, not because he needs to remember, like writing a note, 
but because we need to remember that God remembers. So the people gathered together, their names are written down, and they came together in this community. While everyone else is arguing about the church, about faith, about God not being there for them, about why do we do this? This is stupid. I hate the church. I hate all this stuff we got to do. Nothing seems to be going right in my life. Blah, 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 blah. They're, they're, they're doing that thing. And, and, and the, that faithful remnant get together and they say, you know what? We're just, we're going to stay the course and stay together. And we're going to do this life together. And you know what that sounds an awful lot like? A life group. A small group community. It really does. Psalm 66, 16 says, Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for me. They shared, they opened up, they encouraged, they confessed to each other, they cried to each other, they prayed together, they experienced um, what biblically we know as a, as a functioning community, which is a life group. Um, those who, the reality is, is those who are spiritually alive will seek out other people who have a similar commitment. Um, so, for those of you who have never fallen away from the church, as someone who has, um, when you surround yourself with people who are not like-minded, you will find yourself traveling in the same direction that they go. My mom used to say, you will go in the direction of your three closest friends. That's what my mom used to tell me. Um, and it's true. So you can thank my mom for that. But if you don't have a group of godly influencers, I encourage you to, to, to find a group. There's at least 12 of us here. Some people to just plug in with, to connect with, um, and not to spend most of your time complaining about God or about other people, because eventually it's going to help you. It's going to make you drift, drift right down a path away from God and away from the church away from your faith. So let's go through these five things real quick that this, that this last passage tells us, and I'm not going to go into depth in it. I just want you to have these notes because I cannot allow you to leave with blanks on a page. So there are five things that this, these last few verses teach us about God that we need to remember um, about God's character. And the first is that God listens to us all the time. It says that the Lord listened to what they said. God's listening to us. Um, and maybe for Thanksgiving, as you think of this, um, have you ever started telling a story and people stopped listening, but you kind of kept talking and then you realized no one was listening? Might just be me. God never stops listening. He leans into the conversation always. Um, not to be like creepy listening, but like he, he's always listening. Um, he tunes into our frequency. The Lord always remembers us. The scroll of remembrance, the, the book that was written recording the names. Um, he doesn't need a book to remember us. We need to know that we're remembered. Three, the Lord claims us. He says that they will be my people, says the Lord of heaven's armies. I love how it says in Jeremiah 32, they will be my people and I will be their God because we are a beloved treasure of God. And that's the fourth, that the Lord treasures us. He says, on the day when I act in judgment, they will be my own special treasure. 
He says, they will be my treasured possession. And the fifth one is that the Lord spares us. The Lord spares us. I will spare them just as the Father has compassion and spares the Son who serves him. Because God listens to us, remembers us, claims us, and treasures us, he promises to spare us. Which is grace. As I've said so many times, grace is getting what you deserve. Or sorry, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. 